All right, well, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to Matthew chapter 6. So we're about halfway through the Lord's Prayer we've been working on. And so we're, uh, we're picking up the third request from the Lord's Prayer today, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So to kind of give you a quick review of where we've been, we started off with Jesus' invitation to begin our prayers by praying to God as Father, our Father in heaven. Uh, what it was is it was an invitation into a place, a way of addressing God that on our own, none of us really deserve to be in. But Christ welcomes us in with the simple word, our Father, and holds open the possibility that we can join him in praying to God in a relationship, a personal relationship, children. From there, we were taught to start the prayer by hallowing God's name. We spent some time talking about that phrase. We described this beginning prayer Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name, to be a kind of centering prayer, a focusing in of our attention. Uh, We said and described it in a frank way by saying it's an intentionality to take God seriously, to pay attention to his presence, to take seriously his holiness and his distinction, and to draw our attention into him and what he's doing. The next request, we learn to pray for his kingdom to come last week. And the idea was, in praying this, that we begin to see the world around us and all of its values turned upside down by this new king and the kingdom that he's bringing in. We begin to recognize that a new set of values are being introduced to the world by Jesus and his work. They're values that on our own we don't tend to pick up from the culture around us, but in hearing Jesus pray this prayer and watching Jesus' ministry, we begin to pick up on new things that he's doing, new ways of living. So praying for this kingdom becomes an opportunity to, again, tune our attention, not just into taking God seriously, but to tune that attention into how God is working in this world in a new set of values, a new set of ways, a new kingdom that's coming. So today we start the final of those requests, uh, this first set of three with their upward attention to God, with the simple request, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, it's another opportunity to focus in our attention on yet another step deeper into what God is doing. Uh, So let's get to work on it. We're going to read through the Lord's Prayer. If you've got your Bible, Matthew chapter 6. And Roger, would you mind shutting that back door for us as well? Thanks. People will go back and forth. So let's look at it. Jesus then said, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let your will be done, our phrase for today. There's probably, if you think about it, there's probably very few topics in our entire faith that probably has caught more of our attention or more of our praying than this idea of the will of God. God, let your will be done, the will of God. Uh, You may have not thought much about it. You may have not even ever been really aware of how often you're praying about that particular idea, God's will. But I bet in all reality, if you thought about it, it's a pretty significant part of what your prayer life looks like, what you're thinking about God ends up leading you to. How do we figure out God's will? What is God doing? What is God's will for my life in this moment? As soon as we bring the question up, it sort of opens this big can of questions that probably many of us have wrestled with at a lot of points during our life. Why is this situation I'm currently in happening to me? Why does God have me in this place? Why isn't God doing what I thought he had promised before? It doesn't seem to be happening. What is God's will for the decision, this major decision that I'm forced to make here in the future? What is God wanting me to do? How is he wanting me to act? Where is he wanting me to go? Are these things happening to me because somehow I missed a turn and I'm out of God's will? All these difficulties must be trying to push me back into his will. Maybe I missed it. Why did God put me in this place? Where is he leading me? God, what is your will for this situation I'm in? One author this week I was reading put it this way pretty simply. I think it characterizes it pretty well. The will of God may be the murkiest set of words in the entire Christian's vocabulary. The murkiest set of words. Uh, The questions that come to mind when we start talking about trying to understand God's will usually feel pretty murky, pretty unsure of where we're going and what it means. Uh, I'm not asking you to sort of raise your hands and admit to it. We've all been there before. We've all wrestled in some pretty serious ways with trying to understand God's will. Sometimes they take on serious forms, deep prayer, fasting, a focused attention. Other times we sort of (laughs) devolve into less serious ways of trying to decipher his will. God, if you want me to do X... 
then I'm expecting to see why as a sign, and then I'll know that that's your will and I'll do it, right? We've probably all been there. Or maybe uh, I'm desperately in need of an answer, so I'm going to open my Bible, point to a verse, and trust that what I read is God speaking an answer to me in the situation. We laugh, but we've all (laughs) wished it worked exactly like that. Uh, This week, you may have seen it on the news, there were several people who in South Carolina had witnessed a cloud formation that looked like an angel. I don't know if you saw it, it made national news. Um, One of the witnesses said that he realized it was a direct message from God of hope, an encouragement for difficulties and hardships that his family was facing. Now, I want to be really careful. I'm not pointing fingers and sort of mocking what somebody is experiencing, but it does capture pretty well the fact that all of us are pretty attuned, pretty accustomed to trying to find signs, hints, special messages that lead us into better understanding what is the will of God? What is he asking us to do? What's he trying to say to us in this moment? I want to be careful because God does speak to us. I mean, read through the Bible and God's constantly moving people and speaking through them in all sorts of subtle and distinct ways. It isn't that God never gives us signs or never points us in a direction or prods us down a path, but the fact that we're so captivated, so interested in trying to find and decipher all of these hidden clues of God's will, it speaks pretty clearly that we have a kind of infatuation with trying to figure out what is the will of God? How is that will coming about? Am I in the middle of that will or missing that will? What is God doing? It ends up capturing a pretty significant part of our spiritual lives, especially a big portion of the way we go about praying, the way we go about petitioning God and trying to understand what he's doing and what he's asking of us. When it comes to wrestling with God's will, I think there's usually a couple of ways, a couple of paths most of us end up falling into. On one end of the spectrum, it's pretty common, a pretty well-accepted idea that God has a special particular path one set of decisions, a set of choices that are specifically planned for us, that if we're willing to follow, if we can discover this particular plan, this particular path, then it's the path willed by God with blessing. Make these right decisions, follow this right narrow path, and you'll know you're living in God's will with all of the blessings of being in that will. On the other end of the spectrum is the idea that God's will is some sort of a locked up and shut door a set of unknowable, predetermined events that were long ago put down on a calendar, unalterable. We end up in this perspective sort of wondering what's the point of trying to know what couldn't actually be changed anyways. If God does have any path determined, it'll just happen on its own. Not much attention must be needed to it. More than probably picking up one of those two extremes, what happens to both of us is we tend to flip-flop back and forth between the two, getting frustrated that we're not getting the answers and feeling like it's a shut door, and then getting desperate to get the answers and trying to figure out what the path is. But if you pick up this first idea, that finding God's will is all about finding the particular set of choices, the narrow path that God has predefined for us, what most of us have experienced is it almost becomes a kind of obsession. An obsession to know what God is doing, what his will is, what's the right decision, the right path for me to take in this particular situation. We start scouring every detail of our life, looking for signs, looking for clues, hints. Every conversation turns into potential messages from God, special words that have given to us to help guide us in making the right choice. We think we're after just the right clues to unlock the right decision But the whole scavenger hunt, if you've experienced this, oftentimes turns into a kind of desperate anxiety, a stressed out scramble to try to put together the pieces and figure out before time runs out what it is we're supposed to be doing, what choice we're supposed to make. Uh, I'm reading this really interesting little book this week on this topic. It's called uh, The Will of God as a Way of Life. Jerry Sitzer, uh, S-I-T-T-S-E-R is the guy's name. It's been a really interesting read. And he writes this in the book that I think speaks well to this sort of desperation, the obsession of trying to unlock God's will. He writes this. When a decision has to be made, everything suddenly becomes like a maze. We believe there is only one way out. All the other ways are dead, dead ends. Every one of them a bad choice. We believe that God knows the right way. He has, after all, willed it for us. And we must discover what that will is. The consequences of our choices are therefore weighty. If we choose right, we will experience his blessing and achieve success and happiness. But if we choose wrongly, we will lose our way, miss God's will for our lives, and remain lost forever in an incomprehensible maze. As a result, we pray for guidance. We look for signs, we seek advice, we read the Bible for insights, and we search our hearts. Meanwhile, a nagging question hovers and grows in the back of our minds, what if we got the wrong decision? 
What he describes, I think, if we were honest, most of us have probably experienced at some point in our life. We know pretty well what it is to desperately search, to try to figure out what it is God is doing in a situation. Sometimes it's choices that have to be made. Other times it's painful situations that don't seem to add up. We end up plagued by a kind of frustration and never feel like we're getting as clear direction as we would like to have. But there's also the chance that some idea sticks. Maybe you find some hidden clue, some secret meaning, and all of a sudden in your mind it unlocks and unravels all of the questions that you had about what God might be doing. Uh, This is actually more common than you think. I've run across a lot of people in my life who received some word, some message, some clue that in their mind had unlocked everything that God was about to do. And I've seen people so convinced that they understand what God's will is, so convinced that they understand what God is about to do, that they end up running sort of headlong after this idea of God's will and end up moving themselves into painful situations, situations in which they're anxious to act on this hidden information that they've received, and end up sometimes making a mess out of situations, making wrong choices, choices that don't seem to end up looking much like what they'd expected as God's will. Both the frustration and the empowered confidence can actually prove equally damaging. It can be dangerous when we get discouraged and frustrated, unable to find God's will. And at other times, when we think we have it, it can be just as dangerous, just as destructive when we misjudge and start taking actions on what might be more our own idea than actually God's. But there's something I think that's more important than just this general frustration about trying to understand God's will. What it ends up doing is it actually makes praying this portion of the Lord's Prayer a pretty difficult task. Thy will be done is a hard prayer to pray when we're lost in this maze of trying to decipher what it is God is doing. A desperate search for God's will gets in our minds. The key to the whole puzzle is us being in on it, aware of it, solving the riddle, and knowing exactly what we're supposed to do. Having some perfect clarity about everything that God is about to bring about in our life. Praying for God's will to be done, though, this phrase in the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done, it's a request to neither know ahead of time what God is about to do, neither is it any sort of indication that we're going to be the one to carry it out. When you start praying this prayer, your will be done, it neither requires us to know what that will will be, nor that that will be put in our hands to make the right decision on. Praying this prayer, thy will be done, is a kind of peaceful acceptance that God is at work and that after all it is his will that we are praying would be worked out in our life. All of this obsession with trying to know God's will usually ends up leaving us paralyzed to a point where not much of anything gets done. (laughs) His will doesn't get done. We get stuck just trying to figure out what in the world's going on. When we think we've uncovered the secret, we're pretty quick to start taking the action. We think it's now up to us to act, us to bring that will that we've uncovered about. We don't pray for God to do it anymore. We start taking the action for ourselves, having assumed we know what God is up to. The second idea that God's unknowable, predetermined will is somehow unable to be known, it ends up with a similar frustration. Imagining God's will to be locked up behind some hidden door, closed to our ideas, it ends up hollowing out any meaning, any depth that comes to this prayer. I mean, after all, maybe you've thought this before. If God's will is so set in stone, every detail of it predetermined, what's the point of me praying for it? (laughs) What's the point of me praying for it to come if it's coming regardless of if I pray or not? seems like it's going to happen, so why pray about it? You can see how both ideas end up making this prayer, thy will be done, a hard prayer to pray. We're going to see it in some more detail. But both of the ways we tend to think about God's will end up ruining our ability to pray exactly this prayer that Jesus is welcoming us into. We might say the words, like so many of these, your kingdom come, hallowed be your name, but when it comes to actually feeling it, actually meaning it, going deep into what it is that Jesus is teaching us to pray, we're not quite sure beyond these just being religious sounding words what it even really means, thy will be done. We're going to spend some time in a minute defining what exactly that phrase is, but if you just take it at first glance, face value, you just hear the words, thy will be done. If you meditate them on them for just a few minutes, just the sound of it itself, thy will be done, you can't help but notice that it feels neither obsessed nor disillusioned. Both of those two options that so often end up accompanying our search for the will of God. Anxiety, frustration, trying to uncover it. (laughs) It's all right. (laughs) It might be a message from God. Maybe we should listen. (laughs) A secret will unlocked. (laughs) 
At least it's yeah. reading the Bible, so that's a good sign. <laughs> it's not your private text messages, so. See what he did? Okay, so, <laughs> let me see if I can get back. Uh, both of these ideas that <laughs> on one end of the spectrum, we're desperately trying to uncover what it is God doing. On the other end of the spectrum, what's the point? It doesn't seem to be any knowable information. Both of them, this obsession and this disillusion, neither one sounds like the simple face value of this prayer. The simply praying, thy will be done. It sounds neither obsessed nor anxious, but rather a kind of simple confidence. Neither does it sound disillusioned. It's participating and active and involved. Thy will be done. Uh, I want to give you a little firsthand experience story. Uh, probably all of you could sit down and go through a story like this from your own lives. Uh, we all do. But I remember back my junior year of high school was the first time I ever felt some sense of a call to ministry. And it happened at a youth camp. I was in a service on an evening. And uh, I remember praying at the altar. And it was sort of a subtle feeling. There was nothing miraculous about it. It was definitely not a cloud formation of an angel in the sky speaking to me. It was just this sort of subtle idea that maybe what was coming, that what I was supposed to do with my life was serve in some type of ministry. I wasn't even quite sure what that meant or what that would look like or where it would leave. It was just sort of a simple idea idea that seemed to stick. Nothing really more profound than that. Uh, they did this thing on the mornings. Uh, we would have private devotional time. They give us these journals where we would reflect on what happened in the service before. I've always been terrible at journaling, so I didn't spend a whole lot of time, but I was sitting there thinking. And uh, I remember my youth pastor, John, coming up to me at the time and asking what I was thinking about. And so I shared a little bit this idea. Last night it seemed like there was this sense that maybe I was supposed to go into ministry. And I remember the way that he handled that situation because in all reality, it wasn't kind of what I had expected. I think he said something like, yeah, that sounds interesting. <laughs> he didn't make a lot out of it. Uh, he didn't congratulate me on this special privileged position that I had been in. He didn't somehow assume that I had had some mir miraculous encounter. He didn't lay out all the steps that I would now need to take. He just sort of accepted it. Kind of a face value. Sounds good. I think he said something like, I could see that happening. He didn't make too much out of it. Uh, other people would, is what I came to found out. They actually, at that youth camp, they passed out forms at the end of the week, and we were all supposed to mark down if you had been saved, recommitted your life, filled with the Holy Spirit, or called to full-time ministry. So I remember checking the box, not knowing quite what that meant, and a part of the week was also an opportunity to meet with colleges and universities that had ministry-oriented programs, right? So pretty quickly, they started unfolding the path for you of exactly what that now looked like if you had experienced that calling. And it didn't take long. You hear them start promoting these numbers. This many people were saved. This many people called to the ministry. And you start think, saying to yourself, well, this must be a more for sure thing with more significant implications than maybe I had first processed. Uh, I actually got pretty quickly involved after that. I had done speech and debate. I think I've said that before in high school. And the Assemblies of God had an event called Fine Arts every year. And it was an opportunity for youth to compete in a set of different categories, singing or instrumentation, solos. And one of the areas was short sermons. So I sort of came to mind, and I think I may have prayed that if X, then give me Y sort of prayer. Uh, I'll take one summer to do fine arts, and if you really want me to go into ministry and do all this, leave behind speech and debate scholarships and go to Central Bible College. Then uh, give me a sign. Let this thing work out. So I did this fine arts. I did the short sermon. I memorized the thing, performed it, and advanced the nationals and made it to finals. And we sat in front of the whole sort of event at the end of this National Fine Arts, 15,000 students in this auditorium. This really was, I think, at a sporting complex. And uh, I remember as they were going through the awards, and they called out my name as having won the whole thing at Nationals. And I was invited to the stage to do the short sermon in front of 15,000 people. Uh, in that moment, it's sort of a mix of nerves and emotions. You don't process too deeply what's happening. But I have this really concrete memory of afterwards walking through the convention center. I remember the pillars exactly where I was. And I remember having this sort of super clear idea, this idea coming to me that this must all be some sort of a sign confirmation. Obviously, if I had been this successful, then this must be a sign of what was to come, what this call to ministry must be. And pretty quickly, I got in my mind that it wasn't a simple, subtle, quiet call to ministry that I had received, that first call, but this must have been it. 
with all of its impressiveness and the pride of having won, this must be a sign of God's path and what lies ahead. I thought after that event, I had a pretty good handle on what God's will was. It seemed pretty abundantly clear. I mean, after all, something like that seems to be a much bigger sign than a simple, subtle little idea that my youth pastor says, sounds interesting. Well, this was proof enough, God's will unfolding and all of its tangibleness before me. In retrospect, as I've thought back over that a lot of times, I don't think that God somehow I wandered off his path or missed the mark. I think God was using all of those events. I think God was directing situations. But I think I had taken all of the subtlety, that simple reassurance that God was at work, that that would come about. And I had taken that simple idea and poured into it a whole lot of what my own will had in mind. I had taken a simple, subtle description from God of how he would work, and I had poured into it my own blueprint, my own map of all of its implications, of where it would lead, and how it must go, and everything that I must end up actually having to do. It wasn't that God had made a mistake, or I had wandered off that path. It wasn't that those events were wrong. The real problem was with me. At no point was I praying, let your will be done. I was spending most of my time trying to figure out what that will was so I could start doing it. Where does that mean I need to go? What does that mean I need to start doing? How do I start thinking of myself? How do I describe myself? The prayer ended up sort of disintegrating down into unlocking secrets, picking up all of the action, all the things that needed to be done on my own. I actually want to show you a really familiar story. You might remember it from the Old Testament that I've thought more about since then. Do you remember the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis? Uh, Joseph's story is an interesting one. Uh, If you remember, Joseph has a dream early on as a child. The dream goes something like these bundles of wheat will bow down to this one bundle, and he pretty quickly comes to the realization that it's a sign that all of his brothers and his family would one day bow down to his authority, that he would rule over them. Uh, If you sprinkle in a little bit of his father's favoritism and the special coat that he has over his brothers, what Joseph ends up doing is running around telling everyone about everything that's going to come. I'm going to rise to power above all of you, and all of you are going to serve me someday, and I'm special and unique, and look at this calling, this special will that God has for my life above everyone else's. Uh, It didn't take long for his brothers to get a little fed up with it, a little tired of hearing about it. And pretty quick, this idea that Joseph had about everything that was involved in God's will, this future that was about to unfold, it ended up falling apart into his brothers, faking his death, throwing him in a pit, selling him off to be a slave, then him being sold off to serve in a home where he was framed for adultery, thrown in prison, and left to rot. Who at this point of Joseph's story, including Joseph himself, would have ever said, obviously, all of God's will is unfolding before me? Probably Joseph at this point in his life is saying, one of two things has happened. Either I massively misunderstood what God said he was going to do, or two, at some point I missed a turn of wandered so far out of his will that all of this now is cursed for living my own life outside of what God was doing. It must have looked absolutely nothing like what Joseph had spent his days daydreaming about and wondering about as the will of God, the things that would come. But if you read Joseph's story really closely, if you pay attention to the details of it, there's something that's really surprising about how Joseph lives through these events that honestly I don't think characterized my own well. The further Joseph seems to get from this idea of God's will, what God had promised him, the more he seems not to be moved into despair or frustration or irritation, but the more we start to see this simple kind of content obedience. Joseph never seems to fall apart. He never goes into the anxious obsession. He never falls apart into the disillusionment and detachment. But there's actually a pretty remarkable conversation that captures all of this simple obedience well at the very end of Joseph's story. If you remember how the story ends, there's a famine that strikes. Joseph's brothers, who long ago had sold him off into slavery, come to Israel looking for grain. And by this point, Joseph has sort of risen out of the prison and worked his way all the way up into being one of the key rulers of all of Israel. They come before him not realizing that it's their long-ago lost brother that they had framed and set up and sold into slavery. And Joseph says this to him, years of having moved through discouragement after discouragement, unable to see how God was fulfilling this will, this promise, this calling that had been spoken over him. Joseph says this to his brothers in the very end. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed, don't be angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, 
For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but it was God. It's a pretty remarkable thing to say, given everything that Joseph had gone through to get to this point. It would have been a lot easier if he could have just wandered into Egypt and they could have recognized his special gifting and he just could have risen right to power and then called his family and said, I figured it out, come over here. But instead, what Joseph gets is all of these events of being sunk lower and lower and lower. And in all of those situations, him demonstrating a simple contentment and obedience to that moment that ends up unfolding, sure enough, to this place of his brothers bowing before him. But him not lording it over them, but instead saying, don't be angry or upset. God has been working beyond all of us. It wasn't you who sent me here. It wasn't you who sold me into slavery. It was God. Uh, It's a pretty remarkable line if you think about it. One commentator, Stanley Hauerwas, has a great little book on the Lord's Prayer. He picks up this idea of Joseph's story and he says this. Joseph, at the end of the story, is able to look back on all the twists and all the turns of plot And to proclaim, fear not. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. We're not talking about the silly notion that everything that happens, everything you do occurs because God planned it that way. We're talking about the amazing resilience of God's purposes. God's intent for the world isn't stumped by our plans. God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. What Joseph did is he ended up teaching me a couple things about what it is to try to figure out the will of God and to pray this prayer, thy will be done. He taught me about jumping to conclusions and wallowing around in the desperation of trying to figure out what God's will is. Two things I think Joseph demonstrates well. Joseph never seems to be paralyzed by trying to figure out what is going on around him. He seems to just constantly act and serve and obey regardless of where he finds himself. He never seems to second-guess God or second-guess what God had promised or what God was doing. Whether in a prison or whether in a palace, he simply seems with a quiet confidence to obey. Neither is he ever disillusioned or detached with feelings that he missed God's will at some pivotal moment. He never second-guesses God. He never second-guesses himself. All of the time, all of these issues that he was facing, he just continues to obey God. To trust that God is at work, even though there seems to be absolutely no evidence of it anywhere around him. He just kind of holds on to the idea. God's will must be being worked out. He does it with a kind of patience, a kind of obedience that's neither obsessive nor disillusioned. Just a simple willingness to say, I'll serve in this moment, trusting that his will is somehow being done, whether I understand it or unlock it or not. Here's what I think it suggests to us about this idea of the will of God. Truths that I think we don't often consider in our own desperate searches for it. Discovering God's will never lays out for us, in the end, a detailed blueprint of everything that's about to happen. Every time in scripture you see God begin to speak pieces of his will, it always pulls us in to a present moment of participation. Knowing God's will never gets characters ahead of where they are in that very moment. Every time they try to rush ahead, it turns into disaster. You might remember Abraham and Sarah, who were promised a son, and though they waited patiently, finally got tired and decided to take matters into their own hand and try to produce the child themselves. It ended up in chaos and a mess. Instead, every time God begins to speak his will, he doesn't lay out for us every detail of everything that's about to happen, but rather the will pulls us into the moment and gives us the strength to participate and to begin to see the significance of what's happening right here and right now. For Joseph, the importance of sitting in a prison cell, being sold off by his brothers, framed for a crime he didn't commit. In the moment, able to recognize it's not you who did this, but God, who is somehow doing his will in these moments. The other thing I think it teaches us is the moment we think we know God's will, we have a tendency to jump out of the moment and start fixating on what's ahead and what we need to do to get prepared for it. The first thing we forfeit is anything that we're supposed to be doing right here, right now, in this particular moment, our minds and heads so full of what we think is coming and what we think we will need to do. The consequences end up pretty devastating. For one, consider this. We started the whole Lord's Prayer by building on this relationship of a father, right? A relationship. But it's impossible to have any type of true relationship in the future. As soon as what God is doing and how we're participating with him moves beyond this moment, right now, this place with him, 
it turns into something else. A relationship only happens, only exists in its fullest expression when it's right here, right now. Anything else becomes a nostalgic memory or some sort of hopeful wish in the future. The only way to really have a relationship, to experience that relationship, is the present, to pray, right now, in this place, with all of its context. This jump ahead of God also tends to bias our participation in the moment. We make too little of the events we're currently in, and instead find all of our attention drawn up into the events we imagine are someday coming. Our attention lost for this moment, what's happening around us. I think this is a really important point here to get on what is the will of God and how we go about finding it. God's will is most crucial when it fills the present moment and all of its surroundings with meaning and purpose and nothing more. You've probably never thought about God's will that way. Let me say it again. God's will is most crucial when it fills the present moment with a trust and a confidence, a meaning and a purpose that God is at work. As soon as God's will for us becomes thoughts about the future, hopes about the future, things to come, we end up losing grasp of what God is doing right here, right now in this place. Every time characters in the Bible like Joseph most deeply understood God's will, it didn't bias them away from this moment, but instead it poured into the moment they were in meaning and significance, hope in the midst of a prison. That's what Joseph did so well, what I kept missing as I thought about God's will. Every time I thought about what God was doing in his will, it pushed me into the future, something bigger, something more significant than right now, something I needed to prepare for and think about and make decisions towards. But in Joseph's story, Joseph holds on to this idea, but as he holds on to this promise, it never takes his perspective off of the moment he's in. How does God's will impact this moment in a prison, this moment betrayed by my brothers, this moment framed for adultery? It does the same for us. God's will doesn't need to be known so that tomorrow can be predetermined nearly as much as we need his will so that this moment can take on new meaning. Help me love my neighbor right now in this place. Help me be at peace right now in this situation. Or as the prayer is quickly going to turn, give us daily bread. Help us out of this temptation. Forgive me of this debt, this sin. If your attention is pulled anywhere else but this moment, this need, this place you're in, it becomes pretty impossible to pray, thy will be done. I'm under no illusion that most of us want more than this. <laughs> I think that was my problem from the beginning and still is to this day. Uh, we live in a world that promises and pitches everything for tomorrow. Things we can have, things we can buy, hopes, dreams that we can believe in. And most of us want the same thing with God. In fact, even from my own story, sitting alone outside of a chapel, thinking about the subtlety of God maybe calling me to ministry was not nearly as exciting as preaching to 15,000 people and hearing that I had won a first place award. One of those seemed like something God must be in, and the other seemed like something that could have quite possibly just been something on my mind, something that I had dreamed up. One sounds like daydreaming, the other sounds like real hard, concrete evidence of God at work. But I wonder if I didn't have those two things backwards. I wonder in the success and the concrete examples if it didn't feed the daydreaming and the small, subtle word that filled that moment, a real moment, with a kind of simple confidence wasn't the actual concrete evidence of what God was doing. To be fair, we imagine, all of us, that if we did get insider information about what God was going to do in our life, that it would all be with good intentions. The reason we're so desperate is because we want to do anything God calls us to. Anywhere that God wants us to go, we're willing to do it. Just let us know ahead of time. Tell us where you're leading us, and we'll be sure to be faithful to it and do it. But I want to question the honesty of that claim, if I could, for just a moment. If we're so willing to go anywhere and do anything that God would ask us, so long as he clues us in, why do we find it so hard to just sit right here in this moment and be faithful to it? We, why do we find ourselves constantly wanting to know what comes next, what's ahead, where God is leading, what his will is? What if the anywhere, the anything that we keep telling God we're willing to do is just to sit still in this moment and recognize that faithful to it is exactly what God is calling and asking us to be? I think what happens is our unwillingness to recognize how God's will is working in this particular moment, in this place, in this context, with all of these peoples and things around us, I think it's a pretty good witness against the idea that our motives are pure and simply just wanting to do what God would have us to do if he would tell us. I'm afraid that the mystery of God's will instead helps us escape this moment, captures our attention with daydreaming about what's to come, 
and robs us of any real participation in what God is doing right here, right now, in this place. So, the big question, how do we go about praying? What does it mean if this is God's will, a filling up of this moment with the confidence that God is at fact at work, regardless of the evidence? And what does it mean for us to start praying that, to come to this Lord's Prayer and simply say, Thy will be done? Uh, Martin Luther has a really, so Martin Luther during the Reformation was a part of a movement to try to translate the Bible into common language. Uh, you had to learn Latin and participate in a Latin mass to be able to even hear scripture read. So one of mm, the sort of movements of the Reformation, including Martin Luther's, was to translate the Bible into ways common people could read it. So Luther spent a lot of time trying to translate the Bible into German, common German, that people could read. And when he came to this passage of the Lord's Prayer, it's interesting how he translated this phrase, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here's how he put it. Obviously, I'm not reading the German. This is how he put it, if you then translate it to English. He writes, Your will appear, as in heaven, so here on earth. Let your will appear. It's actually not a bad translation. If you look up this word in the original as Jesus speaks it in the Greek, it's literally something like, let your will be. It gets translated, be done, but the idea is really just be. Let it be. Let your will be. Let your will appear, is how Luther puts it. You've actually probably known this and practiced this prayer way more times than you think you have. Um, Most of us all end our prayers with the word amen. Even Will is too. And when we do our prayers before meals, he'll bow his head and then peek and look around at everyone. And when we say amen, he always says amen at the end. He's picked it up. This is the way you end a prayer, right? I actually thought it was sort of funny this week. I looked up the word amen in the dictionary. And this is the two definitions my dictionary gave. Uh, Definition one. Uttered at the end of prayer or hymn. Thank you for that definition. That tells me absolutely nothing, right? So it doesn't get better. The second definition. Used to express agreement or assent. I amen that. So that was not particularly helpful in coming to terms with the definition of amen. But the word actually comes, I think it's an indication that by this point, and I think most of you would agree, we pretty much have no idea what we're actually saying when we say that word. We just know we're supposed to say it at the end of a prayer, right? Well, the word actually comes from a Hebrew phase, a really simple one, not a complex theological term. Just a simple everyday word, amen. It's the little Hebrew it ends in. It literally means let it be. Let it be. It's just the exact same thing Luther and this... Prayer request is saying in the Lord's Prayer, let your will be. Let it be. That's the whole prayer. You might not have realized it, but you're actually praying in a small mini form this request from the Lord's Prayer every single time you close a prayer with amen. You're simply saying, let it be. Let your will be. Lord, let your will appear. We pray that God's will would show up. After we bring to him requests and needs and worship, we simply close by saying, in the end, let it be. Whatever you would do, whatever you are doing, whatever you will, let it appear. We pray that, in a sense, that God's will would fill this moment, would show up, become apparent to us in such a way that it closes and ends this prayer with a kind of confidence and a kind of peace. Let it be. Uh, Let me give you a little illustration Uh, This is a funny story. Will had this little puppy car that he would push around in the yard all the time. And we made the mistake of leaving it out in the rain. And Millie, our dog, chewed on part of the handle. And the thing sat in the garage for like two months. And So I finally decided he hadn't played with it in a while. I was going to throw it away. So I took this little car out and put it on the far side of our trash can on trash day so that he wouldn't see it. And uh, left for work. And Victoria had come over with her kids to visit that day and noticed as they were playing in the living room that the trash truck was coming down the street. So she called all the kids to the window so that they could watch the trash truck. Which Will got there just in time to see the trash man pick up his puppy cart and throw it over the side of the trash truck. Which he responded with, no, 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 no. And Ellie said to him very kindly, don't worry, Will, maybe they'll bring it back. Which they never did. Uh, (laughs) Will was pretty distraught and I was in trouble because my trick didn't work. But uh, there's this idea for Will. This may not have been a significant object for most of us. It wasn't worth a whole lot. I decided it wasn't worth anything to even hold on to, throw the thing away. But for Will, it ended up being a pretty distraught moment. He lost something so valuable to him and he was pretty upset about it. I was listening to this sermon by Tim Keller, and he used a similar illustration. He talked about a kid who lost a truck, a toy car that he had lost or broke. And he said, imagine if this child, or my son who lost his toy dog car, imagine if you went to them in this moment of despair, frustration with this object loss, and said, I know this is tough for you, but I have some good news. Someone close has passed away and left you with an inheritance of $20 million. 
I know it's hard to know that you've lost this puppy car, but things are going to be significantly better for you. $20 million is going to buy you a lot of new puppy cars. Uh, I can sort of imagine telling Will that in that moment, and I can tell you pretty confidently that would not have changed much of his reaction in that moment. He was upset because he just watched his car get thrown into a dumpster, and he has no concept at two of what $20 million even is. Even if we had cashed it out in cash and stacked it up in front of him, it didn't mean anything. What was on his mind, what had his attention, what had his focus was what had just been lost. What Keller suggests is this. He has a limited ability, a limited understanding to perceive what that news even means for him. What Tim Keller suggested is that how many of us, too, without this cognitive ability, the experience to understand what $20 million was or how it would change this current situation, Keller asks, how many of us who know full well that we've been saved by Christ, we know that we've been welcomed into a relationship that we don't deserve, with God by his mercy. We know that he reigns forever in this kingdom that's coming. We know that he has a will and that there is nothing that stops that will, his purpose, from working itself out in our life. We know it. We hear it. We hear the news given to us. Yet for how many of us do financial struggles or news of diseases or a failure at something important to us just start to question if that will actually means anything? Most of us, like that two-year-old, We just don't have the spiritual development, the experience of this becoming a reality to fully recognize just how much what we're hearing about God's will is actually changing the reality of this moment. We hold on to the signs of what's been lost, of what we perceive happening, of the pain and the difficulty of a moment. We hear the news that God's will is coming and changing all things, and like Will wrestling to understand what $20 million is, we're not quite sure how that changes this moment that seems so difficult, so painful. We need something that speaks our language, a new puppy car that we can see and fill, then we'll trust that God's will is good. But to trust these things are somehow working themselves out when the reality of the moment doesn't appear to prove so is beyond our cognitive debility, the same way that a two-year-old just can't quite perceive the hope and the promise of that great inheritance that's coming. When Luther says that our prayer, thy, king, or thy will be done, is really a prayer to let his will appear, what he's suggesting is not that some holy blueprint would fall from heaven with every detail of our life pre-plotted so we'll know exactly what choices to make. What he's teaching us to do, what he's teaching us to pray, is that God's will would begin to show up in such a way that this meaning, moment this particular place would take on a deeper significance. What he's teaching us to pray is a kind of simple trust that brings God's will, a hope of what God is about to do, into the reality of this moment and simply says, if your will is coming, if I trust that you are at work, that your will is perfect, working itself out, then help it to appear, help it to become real, help it to be made tangible to this moment in such a way that this moment takes on a new reality a new meaning, a new depth. The news of this great inheritance, this hope, this faith, doesn't become distant or future, but it pours into this situation evidence and proof and meaning and purpose of a new reality, your will, being worked out in ways where I hadn't expected it or found signs of it before. That book I quoted before on the Lord's Prayer by Stanley Howard puts it this way. I think it's helpful. It's one reason that we gather together on Sundays, and when we do, we tell stories to one another, stories like the one of Joseph and his brothers. The world is busy telling us stories that say that everything is in our hands, that all of it is left up to us. We're the masters of our fate, the captains of our souls. These false stories blind us to the working of God within this world, within our world. So we gather on a weekly basis and tell stories and pray and sing in order that we might better perceive what is really going on in the world, namely, that God is taking our evil and meaning it for good. It's one of the reasons, uh, it's one of the reasons I've always wanted this church to feel so simple. I want what we do on Sundays when we come together to not look entirely different than the rest of my life that's happening Monday through Saturday. I want what we do here on a Sunday morning, coming together, hearing God's word, praying together, encouraging one another, singing songs together. I don't want it to be an escape from the rest of life, those moments that don't seem spiritual, but I wanted to suggest to you that as simple as this moment is, yet here is God doing something in these songs and words, 
that God's will is working itself out in all of the same simplicity of our life throughout the week. Situations that may not have seemed like clues or hints, situations that may have even led us to believe that somehow God's will was failing us or we had wandered off the path. All of them suddenly taking on a new significance, a new depth of recognizing that when we begin to discover God's will, when it begins to appear, it doesn't pull us out of this moment with our heads into the future, but instead it begins to give us a quiet confidence and hope that this moment is in fact a part of what God is willing and what God is doing. I want to end with this. A few things happen when you really start to pray this prayer. They're simple things, but really where it's all working itself out to. Three things that happen. When you really start to pray this prayer, God, let your will appear. Let it be. This amen prayer. This prayer keeps God's hand in control of the future. We focus on his will. Let your will be done. The doing is no longer in our hands, but we ask that God would do it. God, put your hand on the future. Let your will become apparent. Work itself out. God, we hand over to him all of the hope, all of the expectation of tomorrow. The second thing it teaches us is it teaches us to practice a kind of simple patience. Let it appear, let it be done, doesn't demand that it happen right now, this moment, but it simply says, God, we want to understand what's yet to come. We don't make it happen. We wait and we watch. We draw our attention to God, taking him seriously, watching for what he's doing in this moment, in this place, handing over the hope and the expectation of the future. And like Joseph, we learn to practice a kind of patience that pulls us into a quiet obedience for this moment. And finally, it starts to make this moment more important than the ones that we imagine are ahead. Most of us, especially with the upward mobility of living here in America, constantly imagine that tomorrow is going to be a better day than the one we're in. We like to think about what's to come, what's ahead, how all the work is going to pay off. But really taking this prayer seriously, show me in this moment the significance a meaning and a depth of how your will is at work right here, right now in this place, helps us to tar- start taking this moment more seriously. Praying this prayer unloads all of the pressure of the future off onto God and suggests that his will comes by his hand, and our only request is to see it, to participate in it, to understand this moment by it. Instead, we're finally able to embrace this moment without all the stress of having to manipulate it to try to gain a tomorrow, a future that we hope is coming. We're finally able to accept this moment where we are, take it serious with all of God's seriousness of his will, to obey and participate in it like Joseph did, trusting fully that this moment matters for what God is doing. When you start to pray, let your will be done, what you're doing is taking a deep breath in a world that doesn't tend to often stop and take seriously right now. With that deep breath settling into today, this moment, and this place, you begin to trust God with the future and choose to live in this present moment with all patience and confidence to know that God's will is both perfect and secure and rests best when it's in his hand at his guidance. Today becomes the place of relationship, knowing God, participating with God, praying this prayer, We trust you. We take this moment seriously because we know your will will be done. We trust you enough with it to be able to pay attention right now to the significance of this moment, knowing that it's equally a part of your will as any great sign or wonder or spectacle or miracle might be. You sort of start to catch the idea that this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, is building. Hallowed be your name. We want to take you, God, seriously. Your kingdom come. We want to take the values, the way that you're working in this world seriously. Thy will be done. We want to take this moment where you and those values breaking into this world become most tangible, where your will becomes evident that right now you are at work in those ways. We want to take God seriously. We want to take his work, his values seriously. We want to take this moment where those two things meet together in our lives just as seriously. There's probably no better way to end than probably the most familiar prayer of thy will be done, which was Jesus's own. You'll remember as Jesus is in the garden just before his death, he asks the simple prayer request, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. And he closes his prayer with a prayer of amen, like so many of the ones we've prayed before. Not my will be done, but your will be done. When Jesus leaves that prayer, a prayer that was full of agony blood literally pouring out of his body from the anguish of knowing what was to come. 
it stops. It moves with a kind of simple, quiet, steadfast faith and obedience into all of the events that unfold. When Peter strikes off the ear, trying to defend his savior of one of the soldiers to arrest him, Jesus simply picks it up and heals the man, allows himself to be bound, moves forward. When the high priests bring accusation after accusation, Jesus stands with a quiet calmness and even refuses to defend himself. When Pilate threatens him, tries to get him to speak out himself against the Roman Empire, Jesus simply says, if you say it, then it must be true. As he's drugged to the cross and mocked, ridiculed, spit upon, Jesus prays a simple prayer, forgive them for what they do. It is finished. I think when Jesus closed that garden prayer with not my will be done, but your will be done, what Jesus was doing was exactly what we're called to in this Lord's prayer. He's trusting God, his future, all the things that are about to come. And by handing over all of the anguish and the anxiety of what was about to happen to God, he steps into every moment, every conversation, every situation with a kind of quiet confidence that whatever unfolds, no matter how difficult, no matter how painful, the future is in God's hand, his will unfolding even in those moments. Jesus never seems anxious. He never seems disillusioned or disconnected. He takes every moment as he moves forward serious, but with confidence and peace in the midst of it. I think he becomes for us a pretty good indication of what we're being invited into. As we watch Jesus pray this prayer and as he welcomes us into it, our Father, a participation in this prayer, we pick up the same kind of confidence that each moment we move into, the difficult ones, the ones worth celebrating, the ones that just don't seem particularly significant at all, take on a new kind of meaning, that God's will is unfolding, just as it did in Christ's life. It's unfolding now because of his sacrifice for good. All things work together for the good of those who believe, who bring themselves to pray this prayer, I will be done. Every moment poured in with eternal significance, God is at work. Like Joseph, pulling us through a storyline, not a story dictated by the world around us, not even by our own actions, but what the world meant for evil, God, meant for good. So we look around and for the first time, take a deep breath and take seriously this particular place we find ourselves in. And regardless of the evidence we find, we say to ourselves, let your will be. Let it pour into this moment meaning and significance that I can set aside all of the anxious fears of the future See what you're doing here in this place. Obey you and trust you with a kind of simple confidence, a simple belief that you are at work, even in ways that I may not understand. Let's close in prayer.